Well, what a beautiful and clear presentation of the gospel was delivered to us by a little girl standing in a baptismal tank this morning with great clarity and precision. Noah, blessed your heart, blessed our hearts to hear of that clear understanding of what Christ has done for us and what we need to do about it and then to follow his commands with, uh, with great faith and trust. Well, today we, Lord willing, come to the very end of the book of Philippians. That was supposed to happen last week, and that's why I say Lord willing, because sometimes it just doesn't happen. And uh, what I wasn't able to say last week that I thought I could say turned into a whole sermon for today. So that's the way God's word is. It just expands, explodes. You just look at it and say, there's so much more here. But in fact, today we're really coming to the, um, the real reason for the, the letter itself. It was a thank you note that Paul was writing. And it took him quite a long time to get to the point. But he filled his thank you note with so much grand theology, which kind of is Paul's style. I was thinking about Paul if he were living today in the days of Facebook. There's no way an emoji would work for Paul. No thumbs up kind of thing. Like he'd always be writing a comment and it would be long and it would go on and on and on. And he would pack it with theology. But, but really, this was a thank you note. And I know we've all written thank you notes and they're usually this, hey, thanks so much for the thing, you know, and God bless you and you send that little note out. And that's what Paul was doing. They, the uh, Philippians had sent him a gift. They, they had heard that he was in incarcerated in Rome, and they sent him a gift and sent Epaphroditus to take the gift to him. They didn't have like e-banking back then or PayPal. They had to actually send a person to take the gift. And, and if you know anything about geography, the uh, Philippi, a uh, uh, part of the Macedonian Roman colony all the way to Rome, is a long, long trip and, and uh, fraught with all kinds of dangers and no doubt expense. And and, and Epaphroditus said, okay, I'll be willing, I'll take it. Uh, there could be thieves that would rob him on the way. So I'll take that gift. And he got there. He got very sick. In fact, almost died. And then Paul must have said to him, look, I'm not going to send you back until I write a thank you note. So don't, don't leave quite yet. Um, and so what was supposed to be just a little note tucked in the backpack of Epaphroditus to go back to the Philippians turned into a tremendous work of theology for us. In a, in a moment, uh, I want to say a rare moment, and in a sense it is a rare moment of, of, of Paul's honest emotion. He opens up the curtain of his heart for us in Philippians chapter 4 and shares with us all how he was feeling. And uh, in verse 14 of chapter 4, he says this, Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Now, aside from a couple of allusions he makes to trouble uh, throughout this letter, we would, we would think that Paul was having the time of his life because he talks with great joy about the Lord and, and he's so excited about Jesus and so excited about his salvation, and so excited about his walk with the Lord. And he's constantly saying to people, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. Talks about the great joy of the Lord. In fact, the, the theme of this book is really joy. But Paul tells us here that he was really troubled. 
was not a, it was not a good time for him emotionally. It was a, it was a hard time for him, yet his, his spirits were strong. He was the, I mean, he was the feature entree in a, between a Christ-hater, Christ-lover sandwich that was about to be eaten alive. And here he writes to us. We discovered last week that emotional wellness or wholeness comes through spiritual fullness because of Christ-centeredness. So he doesn't hold back from us the truth of his life that things were not going well for him, but he also wants us to know that, that you can live above those circumstances. Make no mistake about it. If, if Satan can't get you to, to fail in your behavior, he will attack your body or he will attack your family. He will attack your circumstances. And that's why it's so critical for us to, to understand the, the teaching that Paul gives us here on, on how we can, can live in that, that reality. That we are always being led out as sheep to be slaughtered, as Paul writes to the Romans. We are always under the gun. When we become friends of Jesus, we become avowed enemies of Satan. And he works against us that he might get to Jesus. And so we face troubles, we face hardships. But how is it that Paul could say, although I'm hurt, I'm well. Although I'm troubled, I rejoice in the Lord always. How is it that he could say that? There's one caution that I want to give to all of us that we need to be very careful about. It is possible for us to get caught up in coasting on our position in Christ. Well, I've come to know Jesus as my Savior. We heard that testimony this morning from our little friend, our little sister in Christ. We heard that testimony this morning of her position in Christ. It's fixed, it's firm, steadfast, saved by Jesus. But that's not the end of the story. That's just the beginning of the story. Because our position in Christ grants to us a tremendous wealth of blessing that enables us to practice what it is to live in Christ, to be in Christ. It is very dangerous as years go by, it's very possible for us to coast on our position as saved, secure, settled. And then the pounding of life comes. And coasting in your position is not going to carry the day. It's going to be based on how committed you've been to practicing your position in Christ. How intentional you've been to experience the benefits of the power of Jesus in your life in an ongoing way. Please understand this. We're only engaged to Christ. The marriage is yet to come. Now, if you have been married or are married... Think about that day you became engaged. 
And then think about the, the days after that. Did you just say, well, you know, I've become engaged, so that's great. My position is fixed. Uh, I'm not giving her a call anymore. Uh, we've set a date for the wedding, and we'll catch up on the wedding day. You aren't going to marry that dude. You're going to give back the ring, aren't you? Too many of us have accepted the ring, the Holy Spirit, as the guarantee of what's to come. Our marriage to the living Christ. We've accepted the ring and then checked out, waiting for our, our wedding day. When Jesus comes, or when he takes us home. In the meantime, there's a lot of life to live. How do you think Jesus feels about this engaged person to him who has virtually nothing to do with him, not that interested in him, not that passionate about him? Doesn't make sense. Paul shares with us that he didn't take his engagement for, for granted. He passionately poured himself into it, loving Christ, understanding Christ, gaining an insight into what it meant to, to live by the strength of Christ. Let's understand that position and theory do not promote and produce emotional wholeness. Jesus does. Knowing truth doesn't produce spiritual fullness. Jesus does. And this is about Christ. So, by way of a quick review of last week, if you nurture your relationship with Christ, in fact, a review of the last several weeks, if you and I nurture our relationship with Jesus Christ, learning to depend upon Him, learning to experience His strength, in our lives, in difficult times, in troubled waters, when the enemy tries to take away things from us, he won't be able to. Because we have already given everything over to Jesus. And he can't take Jesus away from us. So that's where we focus our attention. That's who we focus our energy upon. That's who we draw near to. Whatever the circumstances, lean into the benefits the strength of Jesus provides. That's what he says here. I know, verse 12, what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. That's the truth that he presents to us today. Oh, Lord God, as we pour ourselves and our attention into your word this morning. I pray that you will strengthen us with this truth. But Lord, that we will not any longer coast on our position in you, but know that you have called us to practice the presence of Jesus Christ in our lives. We've been placed in Christ to live in him, to experience the strength that he promises 
to experience the peace that passes all understanding, to have the God of peace in our lives. So that when the storms buffet, when the people oppose, when the enemy seeks to crush, we are living by the strength of Almighty Jesus and not by our own strength, O God. In the pureness of our initial faith and trust, Oh, Lord, we trust in you. For Jesus' sake, amen. So the big question that I think all of us should constantly be asking ourselves is, is there some sort of difference in our life or in living that we are experiencing because we are Christians? Shouldn't there be? As we look around at everybody else, we ask that question, should, there not, should it not make a difference? Should I not expect there to be a difference? Because if we must face the same kind of trials, and if we must shore up against the same kind of difficult circumstances as happened to everyone, and in the absence of miraculous adjustments to our circumstances, should there be something different for us? As believers in Christ, what's the promise? I can do everything through him who gives me strength. The promise is this, that in whatever Christ permits life to deal you, he promises the power through his presence to sustain you. For some of you, if you've uh, got an NIV translation later than 2011... It's done a great work of adjusting uh, this verse to, I think, accurately catch Paul's meaning. It says, I can do this through him. It's no question that, that we rely upon the strength of Christ for all things in life. But in particular, in the context, what he's really talking about here is, I can handle being fed or hungry. I can handle being in plenty or in want, I can do all of this through Him who strengthens me. It's not me. It's not special about me. I'm not some sort of extra disciplined person. I, it's just I can do this because I have Christ, and so can you. That's what comes with having Christ. We didn't touch on this last week, but I want you to notice when he talks about I've learned the secret, that's a, a really special word that he, he just doesn't use anywhere else. It's, a, it's, a, it's an odd word. It's hard to translate, in fact, and, and translations have done a different, different work, but really it's his testimonial. His own personal testimony says, I have experienced what he calls, in using this word, the mysterious rites of being in Christ. I have, I have been initiated in by experience through tough times in my life what is impossible for people to have who don't have Christ. That's what he's saying. He, he is zeroing in here on a very... He's actually using a word that's used for the mystery religions that were so prevalent in the culture around him. And I think he's doing that intentionally, obviously. To speak in opposition to what they're relying upon, their mystery religions. He's saying, I've learned the real mystery. 
The mysteries that you're talking about are not beneficial, but the real mystery that the rights, the initiation rights that come with our salvation is that regardless of how the circumstances are working out, you are promised the strength of Jesus that you need to sustain you in that situation. That's a special gift. That's a special promise. That is for each one of us. These are the secrets that are unavailable to people who are not in Christ. That's why our lives should be experiencing something entirely different than our neighbor who doesn't know Jesus, than our coworker who doesn't know Jesus. This should be a, an attractant in our life that draws people to Christ by how we handle situations. A mind at peace in a most bizarre moment is entirely unusual. It's, just, it, it's granted to us by Jesus. It's, not, it's inexplicable. We've testified to each other. I've heard so many, pastoring all these years, I've heard so many testimonies from people who've come to me under the most horrendous of, of situations said, I, I don't get it, I don't understand it, but I've got to tell you, tremendous peace settled in my life. That's not normal. That's supernatural. That's normal for the Christian. And so those who don't have Christ, they're like, What? What are you talking about? I'm telling you, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't understand it. Although you do, theologically you understand. I'm just telling you that's what Jesus has done for me. He will do for you. The nearness of Christ's presence and the supernatural strength of his power holds you and me up and steadies our lives. We've had these. Wave at me. You had this experience? You've had this. Look at you all over. You've had tough stuff, and you've had Christ. When I was about, um, I have virtually no memories of when I was a really, really little kid. I don't know if that's normal or not. Some people say it's not. <laughs> but I remember, be, I remember a couple of incidents in my life and one of them that was a recurring incident was when I was about three or four. And the only reason I know is probably that age, age is because of what I'm going to say to you. Is I would crawl up on my father's, I'd get tired at night. We'd be out visiting somebody or something. I'd be tired, crawl up on his knee. And I remember I used to love to just lean back on his chest and just hear him talk. And when I heard my father's voice speaking for me my whole soul was at peace that was the moment I remember as a little kid it is well with my soul I couldn't articulate that obviously it is well with my soul that's what Paul is talking about here he is talking about the rich privilege we have as believers of crawling up on the knee of our Heavenly Father and the nearness to His voice helps us to know it is well with my soul. 
He goes on to tell us in this a second part of this personal testimony. And it has to do with verse 19, whereby he says, And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. The second part that I really didn't have time to get to last week is where we are right now. Once contentment is settling in your heart as you learn to live in contact constantly with Christ. And that contentment settles in your life. Paul says, please, understand that this contentment will only come as you personally get loosed from dependence on yours and others' possessions so that you can finally feel free to make all of your assets available for Christ's mission. In this great cause to send a thank you note, he takes it upon himself to explain to the Philippians what they have really done by sending him an offering. Not an offering that he needed, although it was a blessing to him. He was already content in Christ. Yet Christ had determined that he needed this gift from the Philippians. That's why they sent Epaphroditus to Rome. It was God who put it on their hearts to do this. And this is how God operates and takes care of us. He put it on their hearts. And he says this, I want you Philippians to know that, that you need to understand what this all means in your life. And we here at Calvary, sitting here today with this great ancient letter open before us, this, this ancient thank you note sitting open before us, need to get a fresh awareness of all of the rich theology here and, and why we, each of us, should get loosened ourselves from our possessions and, and others' possessions so that we can finally feel free to make all of the assets that God has given us available for his mission. Why is this so critical? It's, it's for this reason that the Lord has brought us into his family. To be his own. To be his possession. To, to understand that we belong to him. We've been purchased with a, an incredible price. Everything that we have and everything that we will be. Everything that we are is His and about Him. We are intentionally plucked out by an act of His grace. Not because of any merit in our lives, not because of anything we were worth, but just because of who God is. He brought us into a relationship with Him. Get a grip of that every day of your life intentionally graced, intentionally graced. As you wake up every morning, you have been intentionally graced. What does that mean in return? He wanted the Philippians to know, by the way, that he was thankful, but not needy. He was grateful, but not sulking. 
saying, why don't those Philippians give me something? That, that isn't the, the state he was in because he had learned to be content. Do you realize how freeing that is? Freeing it is towards our relationships with each other? If we, fr- if we are content in the Lord, we free each other up to not have to meet our needs. That is completely liberating. We are just free to love each other. We don't have to put expectations on each other because we're content in Jesus. That's what he's calling on here. It's a radical way to live, but it's a freeing way to live. It's an incredible thing. He wanted to unhitch himself from money so that he wouldn't have to deal with those awkward expectations that money often brings. He, wouldn't, he would be free, immunized from, from those people who use money as a weapon against God's work and against God's servants. If you're in ministry, you know that people regularly use money as a weapon. Not always something to love you with. But they don't happen to like what you've said or how you've said it. They regularly try to freeze you out financially. Paul was freed from that. It's, it's liberating to be freed from that. And so... He addresses key concerns that all of us have about these things, particularly about money, about giving. That's on the mind of believers. Will I be amply supplied if I give? Will I have enough? That's a question that we ask. That's a question that, that crosses our hearts. So what do we need to know about wealth management as a citizen of heaven? Because that's how he's described us in in this letter we are citizens of the kingdom of christ so so what does mel- well <laughs> it's easy for you to say what does wealth management look like when you're a citizen of heaven we've got all kinds of stuff on the tv and all kinds of seminars out there in wealth management but but in this little thank you note is a a, a, a plethora of principles on wealth management as a follower of Jesus Christ, content in Christ. I'll share just six with you very quickly. Um, Paul couldn't wait to tell them how free they can be with their stuff. Freer than they could have imagined. I can't wait to tell you either. Because that's what this is all about. Once you've learned contentment, and the process of contentment, this helps you as you, it, sh- it shows up very early in, in how you handle your money. So, very quickly, six principles that I see here in words from Paul. He writes in verses 10 and 11, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Note that, your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Vested concern about the mission and its messengers always shows up in practical ways. You can't say, oh, I care about the gospel. I care about Jesus. I care about his mission. I care about those who are carrying the gospel. I care about those who are talking about Jesus and not show it in a practical way. You can't. In fact, um, 
Genuine concern and partnership in the gospel can't be contained. It, it must be demonstrated. It, it must come out from you. It, it, it has to. He, he says, you wanted to help me, but you had no opportunity. As soon as you had an opportunity, you, you jumped on it. And that's how he describes them. One commentator uh, writes this, the accomplishment of God's purposes does not depend on human help. However, when we give, we confirm that God is at work in us for the ultimate purpose of salvation. We authenticate that Christ is in us by the way we live, and in particular in this act of giving. When Christianity moves from theory to belief, it must be acted upon in practice, always. The concerned, which he uses this word, don't have to be coerced. Over the years, I've, I've noticed that there's a spiritual ugliness that is in hiding but is regularly and easily flushed out in the matter of giving, in the matter of calling for investing in the kingdom of God. There's a significant spiritual sickness that can be fleshed out when it comes to this matter of giving to the mission of Christ. I have received over the years notes, repugnant notes, over this matter of giving that have shocked me. They're never signed. I know we kind of chuckle at that, but it's ludicrous that they're not signed, and I'll tell you why. Because there's a much greater one than me that already knows who wrote the note. That's what I find repugnant. And that's what I find shocking. I don't care what people think of me. I absolutely care what people think of Jesus. And those kind of notes express what you really think about Jesus. Paul writes in verse... 15, near the end, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. I don't believe he's bitter. I don't believe that because I think the whole tone of this is he's, he's moved on from all of that. He's just stating a case. And he's thanking them for their their spiritual sensitivity to the Lord. That's what he's drawing upon. And, and this second principle, because we ask the question, why does the church talk so much about money? Why are you talking so much about money? Paul, why do you talk so much about money? By the way, I have no problem talking about money. Invite me to talk about money anytime. I'd love to get on this platform and talk about money. It doesn't bother me. I love to ask you for money. I think you already know that. 
You think I get up here and I'm thinking, oh, you know, I'm, oh, I don't, I don't really want, you know, I'm, I, I, I can't bear to ask you for this today. I have no problem asking you for money. When it comes to Jesus and his mission, not at all. In fact, uh, maybe we're unaware of the amount of times that the Word of God talks about money. It's a key subject in the Scriptures. One out of every ten verses in the New Testament is about money or possessions. That's 288 verses. Out of the parables, 16 out of 38 parables are about money and possessions. Almost half. In the Bible itself, the scope of the Bible itself, there are approximately 500 verses about prayer. There are approximately 500 verses about faith. And there are approximately 2,000 verses about money and possessions. So God isn't bashful about talking about money either. So this, in this matter, he says, in this matter, this event, this reality of giving... In the matter of giving and receiving, the gospel is not for sale. It's free. Is that an amen moment? It's the first time anything's free today. The gospel is free. But the mission of the gospel costs money. And God doesn't apologize for that. You think it was free to send Epaphroditus to Rome? They had to pay for passage. They had to take care of him. Give him some food money. It costs money to do the mission of Jesus. And God doesn't apologize for it. In fact, God has no problem calling in his money, asking it, asking for it. In Romans chapter 11 and verse 34 and verse 35 and 36, uh, Paul writes this, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him. Do we think that we could outgive the grace of God to us? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. We're not repaying. God doesn't repay us for what is already his. Everything is already his. To him be glory, the glory forever. Amen, Paul writes. So he says, not one church got in the mission of the Apostle Paul. Now, retrospectively, if you want to invest in the gospel... And you want returns, I would invest in the Apostle Paul. The, the people who didn't invest in Paul, it's like, it's like all the rest of us who are kicking ourselves because we didn't invest in Apple 20 years ago. If we had bought $1,000 worth of Apple stock in 1996, you know what we would have today? You maybe don't want to know. We'd have $215,000. That's just shrewd investment. So investing in Paul, not one church invested in Paul, says except for you. Not buying into Paul. It's like not buying into the work of God. Not buying into what that means. So God's work Resourcing us is not dependent on us, but 
God has called the earth and all that is in it his. And he supplies. There's a third thing that I notice he says here. In verse 17, not that I am looking for a gift, he says, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. Sharing in the input means sharing in the output. Why do we need to be investors? You get to pad your heavenly credit account, credit rating, and you get to use God's money to boot. Now think about that. What you have is not yours. It belongs to God. We already theologically settled that. But in investing in God, he credits it to your account. Now that's an amazing thing. So what have you got in your account? What have I got in my account? How how big is your account? As, As heavenly citizens, how big is your account in the cause of the kingdom of Christ? How big is your account in in heaven above where rust and thieves and mold and those kinds of things can't get to? Because Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So how, how much of your heart is invested in the kingdom of God? Paul's talking about living a life worthy of a, of a citizen of heaven. So how big is that account? And he uses business terms of the day. It's translated in a variety of ways in our text here, but he's really saying here that God is continually increasing profit for your account. God is increasingly, God is continually increasing profit for your account. The picture is, as you invest in the work of God, it is compounding interest to your account in heaven. Now that's smart investing, That's what he says. And um, it it seems here in this account, it it increases your credit rating in heaven. You all know what a credit rating is? How much the bank is willing to lend you because of how good a risk you are? It's the same with God. In, In Matthew chapter 25... Verse 23, Jesus says this, The master, meaning the Lord, says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. You and I are establishing our credit rating for heaven in terms of how much God is willing to entrust to us by how faithful we've been with the little that he's given us here. Isn't that something? That's what the Word of God teaches us. And wherever there is money involved, there's always a potential for trouble. Trouble's not far away because Satan exploits these, these matters. In fact, Jesus, in parable in Luke 16, called money unrighteous. Money's unrighteous because it has the capability of swaying you away from the Lord from righteous acts. It has the capacity to replace God in your life. That's why Jesus said you can't serve God and mammon. 
Can't serve God and money. You must choose who your God is. And so Paul, when he's talking about money, he, he urges people to lots of layers of accountability to prevent abuses or the appearance of abuse. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he talks about a, a, um, an offering that was being received by the Macedonian churches that was taking an offering to Jerusalem. And he says here in, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, he says, I thank God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. He comes to ask them for money. We're sending along with him the brother who's praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering. So making sure that we're several people involved. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. We are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of, of men. And being very careful, setting up visuals to be heated, wit witnesses, distance from handling money or handling in, in, in groups. Take pains on this. Avoid even the hint or the smell of impropriety or scandal. There are all kinds of charlatans in the day of, of Paul who were, who were running around using the gospel to, to make themselves rich. Hey, nothing's changed. And so in this matter of money, it's critical that layers of accountability to prevent abuses and appearance of abuse be set up. The fifth thing that I think is important to point out here is found in verse 18. I have received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Don't miss this. Your offering, your sacrifice is your Thank you note to God for his investment in you. Paul sets this thank you note against the backdrop of critical theology. And he says this, in the same way that I am grateful for your gift to me, which I really don't need because I've learned how to be content, but I'm thankful. In the same way, the Heavenly Father, who doesn't need our gifts, is very thankful and is very moved by these acts of love. We, you know as parents or grandparents or uncles or aunts or whatever you are, little kid comes and brings you a gift. There's nothing like it. Uh, our little grandsons were at some garage sale and they've studied their nanny. You know her as Lynn, they know her as nanny. They've studied their nanny and they saw this little vase and they thought, that's the kind of thing she would like. And so they got it for her and they picked some dandelions and they stuck them in it and they presented it to her. And we have had dead dandelions hanging over a vase 
for a long, long time. Because that gift meant everything. And so it is with our Heavenly Father. It's, Paul talks about it as a fragrant offering. Fragrant to whom? To God, of course. It comes into his nostrils. An acceptable gift. This is Old Testament echoes. Where Israel failed so many times to please God by their idolatry, by their social injustice, by holding back from giving. And now he's picturing words that are, that are talking about the age of Messiah. And Paul is saying this is messianic reality. That God's people would now have a heart of generosity and give generously fragrant offering acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Know very well that when your heart opens up in generosity to God, you are practically sending a thank you note to heaven. That's how God sees it. Finally, in all of this, God will not leave you depleted. You can never outgive God. God will not leave you depleted. And my God will meet all your needs. Is that hard to understand? I guess it's hard to believe in. Is that what it is? My God will meet all your needs. That's a promise. A promise to every believer. God's need-meeting capacity is based upon his riches in Christ Jesus. Look at what he says here. According to his glorious riches, total spiritual, material, emotional this is not all about money this is about jesus and what he brings to each of our lives out of those resources the father in heaven meets our needs now just so you get the true picture of this he doesn't use the words out of he uses the word according to the riches. There's a huge difference. If a millionaire gives you 20 bucks, he's giving you out of his riches. If a millionaire is going to give you according to his riches, what are you thinking you might be getting? Maybe a hundred thousand bucks. God doesn't give to us out of the riches of Christ. He gives to us according to the riches, the glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Fully able, fully willing to meet whatever needs surround the believer. But by the way, this need-meeting capacity of God is all about making certain that it is whatever will bring glory to our God. He ends it this way, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So the 
capacity and ability of God to meet our needs is infinite. But how he meets our needs is locked into the glory of God. He meets our needs in a way that will glorify God. In a way that will cause our commitment to Jesus to escalate. And in a way that will make sure that our love for the things of this world diminishes. This verse has been so abused. To, to turn it on its head and suggest that our God is a financial vending machine. And owes us money. Nothing could be further from the truth. God is rescuing us from the love of the world. Not further entrenching us in it. So when he comes to meet our needs, they may not be as exactly the way we think that our needs should be met. But they will be to glorify God, to advance our commitment in Christ, and to detach us from our love of the things of this world. The promise really here is our God will resource us to cope with hardships. My God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Our Father, we bless your name. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. We understand the urgency of applying this truth to our lives. You have called us to loosen ourselves from our, ours and others' possessions that we might finally feel free to make all of our assets available to you. Because all that we have and all that we are is from you and for you and to you, to the glory of God. Amen. Let's put a wrap on this thank you letter the way Paul did. For, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet each and every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household, the new converts that had come to know Christ while Paul was in prison. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Next week we'll look at when you have been deeply wronged by someone. What does the heart of Jesus enable us to do? Our Father and our God, it's been great to be here together today. You have taught us about contentment in Christ in all ways. In particular, our Father, that we might be loosened, detached from our possessions and those of others, that we might feel free to make all of our assets entirely available to the mission of Jesus Christ. May it be so, in Jesus' name.